0: This reading is going to be taken from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. First letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. I will end the reading by saying, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from, the, from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be to God. Thank you very much, Paula. During the song of the word, you're not meant to sing. I hope I still have my voice. Uh, Thank you guys for really leading us into um, preparing us for God's word. And I'm just praying that I now don't disappoint to bring you guys all the way down. But um, thanks. uh, Good morning, everyone. And uh, nice to see you all. Um, Let me just start by saying for those who've not been with us for a long time or those who are coming for the first time, um, we are looking at a series. And in this series, we, is, we call the Gospel-Centered Urban Church. That really is um, our identity as a church. We like to identify as a Gospel-Centered Urban Church. Now, with this series, we are questioning, or we are trying to present again, uh, we are recasting vision of who we are. Why do we exist as a City Church? And many of us always have to ask that question about ourselves. We have to ask that question about the organizations that maybe we lead. Who are we? Why do we do what we do? Now, so we've been going through that. It's going to go run from September to November. And we've divided the three months into gospel, mission, and community. So gospel, we looked at last month because we're gospel-centered uh, church. This month is mission because we're saying we're not just a gospel-centered church, but we're in a particular place, and that's an urban setting. And so we're called as missionaries or to be missional to that urban setting, and then the month in November we are going to consider community because we are a church, we are not just individuals, all right? So that's what we're doing. Last week, uh, Dami um, showed us the imperative from the Great Commission in Matthew 28, um, 16 to verse 20. He showed us that we are commanded to go out on mission. The one with all authority in heaven and earth has told us to go, so we're meant to go. This week, though, we want to talk a little bit more of the mechanics. So, so forgive me if it doesn't feel that sermonic today, and it feels a little bit more um, like, like a lecture or a teaching. Uh, but it's, it, it has, there's a reason for that. So let's, let's get into that. Now, again, I said, like, Dammy told us that we should go. That Jesus well, Not Dami telling us to go. Dami told us that Jesus said we should go. All right? Oh, my word. we start? So that um, we are meant to go. And I'm sure a lot of us here, maybe some of us that got converted in secondary school or some of us that got um, converted in uni, one of the things that always bugs you is this kind of guilt, this guilt, I don't evangelize again. And then you start talking about how back in those days, those days, we used to go about two by two. We used to knock on doors and it didn't matter whether they were to throw acid on us. We were going to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. Anytime I enter the bus, I couldn't keep my mouth shut. They'll say, keep quiet. I'll say, no. I'm being persecuted for righteousness' sake. So you continue to speak. You are evangelizing. I say these days, fam, is hard. It's it's hard. I'm too busy. You know, I I knock on doors. I don't even know who my neighbor is, let alone knock on people's doors that I can't even, you know. it's And there are just so many little opportunities. But this guilt... It's still there. I know I should have evangelized, but I neither have, if I have to be honest, I don't have the passion, nor, in many ways, I don't think I even have the expertise. See, there are two issues, the passion issue and the equipping issue. We need to be equipped, and we need to have passion. Let me take the latter one. Now, the reason that most of the time we feel ill-equipped is actually an urban reality. You see. At a certain time, uh, that song was for two, two weeks ago, but don't worry, we'll bring it back very soon. All right, but at at other times there was a time when it was easy because we lived in a very communal environment. It was easy to go to that woman's door all the way down. She's not going to kick you out. She's at least going to listen to you. Now, if you even just knock on your neighbor's door to just say hi neighbor, they'll be like, Yes, I live next door. Yes. I just wanted to say hi. Okay, You're not a pedophile or something. And so there's this awkwardness. And I'm at work. Obviously, I'm not called to work to evangelize. I have to do the things. But these other people, and yes, I have this command. I just feel like I don't know how to say it. The times I've gathered up um, the gumption to be able to go and speak to people, it didn't really work out well. I felt looking very embarrassed. Now, I said, we're a gospel-centered urban church. That means that we know that our mission context is in the city, the city of Lagos, now one of the largest cities in the world, and continuing to increase in population. And this population drives so many things. There's diversity. It's the most diversity in the whole of Africa, and in the whole of, well, I would even say probably in the whole of Africa, just in terms of ethnicity. So many different things. And the urban reality brings a, an urban problem. Now, the church has always had an issue with how do you deal with this this animal that is a city, this animal that is called a city. Now, there are two views. I'll tell you the more modern view and then the the one that we used to kind of have before. But the the church has sort of considered the city in two different ways. Now, let me illustrate this with a song, but I'll use the city of New York. Two views. So the first view is what we can call the Jay-Z view. The Jay-Z view. What's the Jay-Z view? In New York, concrete jungles where dreams are made of. There's nothing you can't do. Now you're in New York. This streets will make you feel brand new. Big lights will inspire you. Let's hear it for New York. Now that view, the Jay-Z view, basically says it's all about inspiration. It's a can-do spirit. There's nothing that you can't do. It's a place where you can fulfill your dreams. Many times, I remember when I was serving and I was outside, some people I used to say, ah, oh, uh, Lagos, you know, uh, I was serving um, in River State, not in Port Harcourt, by the way, but somewhere in River State. And I used to talk about how Lagos is so populated, that too many people say, oh, God, wait, till I, I never go. <laughs> that is, I've not yet achieved my own dreams. Because Lagos is the city where dreams are made of. You, they, it will make you feel brand new. So that's one view. And when the church takes this view, that is, a almost holistically positive view about the city, what happens is that we become like our context. We become like our context, because ultimately it's good. And so we adopt, there's almost no distinction. So that's view one. Now view two, again, I said, using a song and taking the city of uh, New York, we can call the other view the Majek Fashek view. All right? What's the magic-fashek view? Well, it's very simple. When you look to the right and you look to the left, you look down the south and up to the north, what you see is confusion. You look to the right, look to the left, look down the south, up to the north, what you see is distraction. And when you look to the right, look to the left, look down the south and up to the north, all you see is illusion. Yeah, it's in New York. Confusion, distraction, and illusion. The same city. And in this view, the city is holistically, wholly evil. And what is the church? When the church views the city, our context, in that view, what are we meant to do? We are meant to withdraw. We withdraw from our context. In fact, the Bible can put it in another way. One is Babylon. The other one is Jerusalem. Jesus views Jerusalem, as you see in the book of Revelation, you have a story of two cities. Eventually, Babylon falls. It says, come out of her because don't be partakers of her plague. And then eventually, Jerusalem, we see the holy city Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So which is it? Is it Jeze, is it Fashek? is it Babylon, or is it Jerusalem? Well, I want to say that the Bible has a more nuanced view to it, especially now that Christ has not returned. If you remember the exiles in Jeremiah chapter 29, where the ex- Jeremiah writes a letter on behalf of God to the exiles. The exiles have been taken from their city, Jerusalem, and now they're going to Babylon and one of the other prophets was saying, don't worry, in two years, the Lord is going to bring you out of here. Don't don't engage with them. You are saying, just think about it as Babylon. Just think about it in Madagachal's view. Just withdraw. And then God says, no, you will live with your identity. You are still exiles. In other words, your identity is not formed in Babylon. You are my people. Your identity is formed from another place. But seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the Bible kind of holds these two things in tension. And the passage that we've read here, Paul is going to teach us certain things that we must know both our content and our context in the way that the Bible defines both of them. When we do that, this Mission Impossible, when we think about evangelism that is very hard, all of a sudden we start to become Mission Possible. So today's message, which is called Mission Possible, but really we're looking at what you call, what you introduced to us from the beginning as contextualized evangelism. We'll consider in three, under three headings. Contextualized evangelism, the task. Contextualized evangelism, the strategy. And contextualized evangelism, the blessing. The task, the strategy, and the blessing. So let's start with the task. I hope not to spend too much time here. You know, things have really changed in our city. For many of us here growing up, do you remember assembly time? you remember assembly time? And we had to sing. And you never went to assembly time alone, did you? You went with something in your hand. If you didn't go with that thing in your hand, you'd be flogged. You'd be put outside. What was that thing? Song of Praise. Huh? Songs of praise. Some people say sacred something, so I don't even know. Maybe that one came in the 90s. But songs of praise. Tell me, use songs of praise. B- Baptist him now, well, that's why you have turned out the way you are. But anyway, songs of praise. We all had songs of praise. Wonderful verses. Roaring music to God. Look at those well-structured, filled with doctrine. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small. Is the Lord God. No, 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 take my life and let it be. But it's the Lord God that made them all. That was assembly time. And we learned all these wonderful things. So you can imagine, to my horror, when one day my son came back and he had uh, one of the songs he'd learned from assembly time, and he started telling me about how God, uh, Daddy, um, I want to bend low, bend low, bend low, bend low, and see what the Lord can do. Horror. What? He learned it during assembly time. Now it follows in a long line of entertaining, mood-lifting Nigerian Christian songs. One of those songs is called Winner. Oh, do you remember? Winner, oh, winner. I mean, don't worry. Don't sing it. But there's a part in that song where he asks us a question. Eventually, he's done all of those things. And he asks you a question, are you a winner? And I can imagine Paul asking that same question. Because Paul is so obsessed in this passage about winning. Verse 19, to win as many as possible. Verse 20, to win the Jews. Verse 20, again, to win those under the law. Verse 21, to win those not having the law. Verse 22, to win the weak. Paul wants to win. Now, this is not any kind of generic winning, like, you know, someone winning the lottery or someone winning, quote, unquote, in life. Paul is specific about this winning. If we look at verse 19, he says that I made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And the, verse 23 is a parallel verse where he says that I have become all things to all people so that, that's the purpose clause, so that by all possible means I might save some. Paul winning, for him winning is saving some. Those who are won are those who have been saved. Which begs the question, want to what or to who? And with what? What am I winning or what am I winning them to? And what am I using to win them? Now, I want to be very quick. Because we've gone through the gospel, and I don't want to spend too much time um, on this point. But it's very simple. Let me take the first question who are they uh, who are they to whom are they are they being wanted and the issue here remember it says that they are saved but the question is who are they saved from and the bible is clear if you read romans chapter 1 2 and 3 we are saved from god that is, it is wrath but we are also if we are saved from god we are won to who to god as well that is his eternal blessings and pleasure the wrath of God is revealed upon all humanity. Can someone help with that window? I think one of the windows is open there. The wrath of God is revealed upon all humanity, upon all humanity because of evil and sin. When Paul says, I'm trying to win people, he's saying, I'm trying to save them. Okay, don't fo- Okay, Should we wait for him? You're stealing my thunder. All right. Can we back back to Paul? Okay, not to me. Back to Paul. All right? When Paul says that we are winning people, the idea is we are saving people. Who is he saving those people from, he's saving them from the wrath of God, the just and holy God. But that just and holy God is the same God that he's being warned to. So that we don't have one angry God on that side there, and then we have one loving Jesus Christ here. In fact, if you read the Bible very well, you will find out that that Jesus, gentle Jesus, may come is the same person who is going to judge the living and the dead. He is the one that treads the winepress of God's fury. God has ordained a day in which He would judge the world by the man He has ordained, Jesus Christ. But it is that same Jesus that on the last day we will worship with God in the holy city, where we'll be saying, worthy, worthy is the Lamb, like we sang today, and the one who sits on the throne. So we are saved from God, but we are saved to God, from his eternal condemnation, but now to his eternal blessing. The question I have for you is this. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that that person who is not saved, that person who is not one, is someone that is that has the wrath of God hanging on him. But let me quickly move on to what are we using to save them? You know, if you are many of the guys here, you know, you warn your wife. You know, at first she was a bit distant from you. She thought you were weird. She thought you were a bit, you know. But eventually, you won her through something, all right? If you're like me, you won her through smooth talking, right? Just using those words, writing. One that, you know, I can say all of this because she's teaching the children, she's not yes. here. So, but some of us, want them, through smooth talking, some of them, you know, it was the new man, the, new, the, the 2000 man, he was vulnerable, he was really into him, you know, he could, he could talk about his fears and all of those things. And some, some, some women wanted that. Some of them, you know, thank God, he has a nice job. And some of it, which I'm increasingly trying to advise guys to do, is that you should just shut up and stop talking about yourself. Many guys would actually win the girls of their dreams if they just kept quiet. <laughs> the point is, though, to win someone, you win someone with something. And Paul is saying, if you are going to be won or saved from this God's wrath, you need something. And what is that thing? It's some content. That content is the gospel. In verse 16, he says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me. That is, there's both a passion... But he's quite clear as to what he's using to win people, the gospel. So this gospel is our content. And, guys, remember this. The only way you're going to win people is through the gospel and nothing else. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for that is the power of God unto what? Salvation. That's the only way you save. And it doesn't matter the people, because it is like that both to the Jews and to the Greek. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness we couldn't get under the law. We've said all of this, and if you, again, please go back. If you want to catch up on all the things we said in the gospel, we had four messages on the gospel last month, and it's there on SoundCloud. But let me put it this way also. If the gospel, and this is the first step of evangelism, or actually second, the first is that you should be passionate about the people if you feel they're going to perish. But I won't say too much of that today. But the first is that if you are going to win people alone by the gospel, that presumes that you must know the gospel. And I say that because there are many false alternatives around that as the gospel. You have the prosperity gospel, which is Jesus saved me to be healthy and wealthy. You have the therapeutic uh, gospel, that is, Jesus uh, died and rose again so that I will never feel any negative emotion in my life again. You have the kingdom gospel, Jesus died and resurrected so that I can ex- exercise dominion in the seven mountains of business, education, uh, uh, art and, ent- art and uh, entertainment, and all of these things. Huh? Technology, all of these things. All those things are not the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news that the incarnate and crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, is the risen Lord and impending judge of the world. Now, you must know that by heart if you're ever going to evangelize. Because what they have to hear is the message about Jesus Christ. True, they will not be saved if they do not believe, but they will not believe if no one is sent, but they will not be sent if they don't have what it is that they are going to take to you. So know the gospel. We must not redefine it. We must not rewrite it. That's not for us to do. So to be a good evangelist, you must know your content. But to be and be passionate about it. But to be a, a good evangelist, you also must know your context. Which takes us to point number two. So you know your content, but you must also know your context. And I want to spend more, a little bit more time here. So point number two: the strategy. Now, in book of one Corinthians. It has different sections, so 1 Corinthians 1 to 4 is one section, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, so 1 1 to 4 is is addressing the issue of um, uh, this party spirit, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollo, so uh, just be careful how you build up cultic um, people in your faith. So 1 to 4, but 5 to 6 is dealing with all these issues of sexual immorality and just sin, basically, terrible sin in the church. And then, but particularly sexual immorality. Seven is a chapter on its own, dealing with the issue of singleness, marriage, and all of those things. Now, 8 to 10, or 11 verse 1, is another section on its own. And the main thing he's dealing with is what you can call the right exercise of gospel freedom. The right exercise of gospel freedom. Galatians 5 verse 1, for freedom, Christ has made us free. That is, part of being in sin is in under slavery, but... Through the gospel, you are now made free. Now you've made free, though, there is a wrong exercise of that freedom, and there's a right way to exercise that freedom. So in verse 8 to 9, Paul, uh, verse, eight, uh, verse 9 of chapter 8, Paul says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And he does, he says a lot about that in food, eating foods to idols in chapter in chapter 8. I'm saying that because it's really important. Yes, um, depending on your view, let's say you, you take a view that um, you, don't have to, you don't have to be a teetotaler when it comes to alcohol. It's true, but that doesn't mean, because you say, uh, you see this a lot, the person, no, we're free to do anything we want, and then you want to point to, you want to prove to your parents who actually believe that you should be teetotalers, you want them to see that now I can drink. You want those, that your old pastor to show him, just show him that I can drink. You are not free when you behave that way. You are actually a slave. Because they are still at the back of your mind. And you feel that you need to express it to them for them to see. Anyone who is free doesn't feel the need to prove his freedom. And in fact, a very um, good way to emphasize your freedom is your ability to lay that freedom down. And that's what Paul is trying to tell them. He says it in 8 and in 10. But in 9, he uses himself as an example. So for instance, in in Corinth, a lot of the speakers used to want to take money, you know, not the speakers of the gospel, but other things. They wanted to take money. They were always into their speaking and trying to get money. And Paul says, I did not, even though I have the right to actually collect money from you, I did not use this right. Chapter 9, verse 12. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But what did Paul do? He didn't use his right. He says, but we did not use this right. Why? On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul could have done that, but he felt that using this right was going to hinder the gospel of Christ. So to show that he was truly free, what did he do? He put the right down. And so that is why in verse 19 here, he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. By making himself a slave, he's talking about the putting down of his rights. And what is the purpose, verse 19b, to win as many as possible? Do you see? I am free, but I lay down my why? For a purpose. I want to win as many as possible. Let's face it. One hindrance to the gospel advancement in many of our lives is our hatred for the disruption of our comfort. This traffic, it's going to be an awkward conversation. I don't know, this relationship, we, we may, you know, it may affect this relationship. Well, this relationship for eight years, that you have still not been able to tell the person that the way they're living is not right. No, you see, at that point, the gospel to you is your comfort and not the true gospel of Christ. You see, when Paul speaks about everyone, though, you notice in verse 19, he said, I made myself a slave to everyone. He's not talking about everyone in the whole world. He's talking about everyone in, the terms, of, in terms of the classes of different kinds of people. And he shows us those different kinds of people from, from verse 20 to From verse 20 to 22, who are those? Those are the Jews, those under the law, those not having the law, and the weak. Paul said, I have imposed slavery upon myself to become like these people. But notice what Paul is doing. On the one hand, he says everyone. On the other hand, he breaks down those everyone. On the one hand, he's grouping all of them together. These are the people maybe in Corinth. But on the other hand, he's reading his context very well. He's saying they are the weak in terms of how they understand certain aspects of the Bible. But it's also saying cultural that these are culturally Jews. Then it's also saying in terms of theology, these are those who are under the law, but these are those who are not with the law, that both culture and, and theology. In other words, Paul is breaking this context down. Paul is saying, I, just, I, I am aware of the context in which I am bringing the content to. This is really important. The only way he's going to be able to save some is by reading the context that you see in verse 22. So that by all means, I might save some. Say this with me. If content is king, all right, I'll start again. Say this with me. If content is king, then context is queen. You need both your content and your context. You see why? The knowledge of your context determines how you present your content. Notice what I said. It is the knowledge of your context that determines how you present your content, not that it determines what your content is. Your content always remains the same. People are not going to be won by another gospel. Galatians chapter 1. But the way that gospel is presented, as Paul is showing us here, cannot be presented in the same way. Look at an example. Acts chapter 13, Paul gets into a city place called uh, uh, um, Antioch in Pisidia. Many Jews. He goes into the uh, synagogue. How does he present the gospel? He takes the scriptures and shows them from the scriptures that Jesus is who? The Messiah. Why? Because these are Jews. These are people that have been reading the Old Testament all the time. Fast forward four chapters after, in Acts chapter 17, he meets Greeks in Athens, people that know nothing about the Bible. Paul says, as some of your poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being. Paul's argument and present—you know he still gets to the gospel because he says that God has ordained a man, uh, God has ordained a day in which he will judge the world by the man he has ordained, and this he has proved by raising Jesus from death. So he spoke about the resurrection. But he did not start with the scriptures. Sometimes when we are talking to people who have no regard for the scripture, the first thing we want to be saying, well, God has said, where? In the Bible. Well, I don't care much for the Bible. Well, but the Bible has said, are you listening to me? Well, and then you feel good that at least i have evangelized. Let me give you one example. you got Paul. What about Jesus? John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. Jesus meets Nicodemus, a scholar in the law. And then he meets the Samaritan woman at the well. What's the difference? Well, many differences. He's a man, she's a woman. Most likely, he's, he's old, she's young. He has political power, she has, she's politically, she has no power. He's a Jew, she's a Samaritan. He's wealthy, she's poor. They have two different needs. They are two different people. Do you know what Jesus eventually said to Nicodemus? He said, except the son of man, just as Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, he's quoting Numbers 21, so the son of man must be lifted up. So he still says, look, at the end of the day, you need me. And Jesus also tells the woman that you will not worship in this mountain or here, but the time is coming, and now is when those who worship God will worship in the spirit and truth. He said, we know that will happen when the Messiah comes. I am the one. Jesus presents himself to both people. The content remains the same. He doesn't present it the same way. And so if we're going to be good evangelists, we must know this context. You cannot present the gospel the same way to these Lagosians: a veteran consultant, a young IT programmer, a bus conductor, a housewife, a secular human, rights activist, a high culture Pan-African artist, an aspiring uh, Afro-pop singer, and a street prostitute. How would you say the gospel to them in the same way? For God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Is that true? Absolutely. Can you present that the same way to everyone? No. And I'm saying that because the Bible says you can't. You see notice what Paul says all through. Verse 20 he says to the Jews, "I became like a Jew." And also to the Lord, those under law, "I became like. I became like." again. I became like all." And then it summarizes, that says, "I have become like all things." What does it mean to become like? Well, let me tell you two things it means, that two things it's not. You should neither be an obnoxious Christian. Can I have the slide please? You, can, you should neither be an obnoxious Christian or an undercover Christian. An obnoxious Christian is, I mean, you know those people who sometimes you are working as colleagues and they are playing their music, they are Christian, they are playing it. Or you, maybe they are working under uh, you, a subordinate, and you want to tell them to do something, and then you say, sorry, please, I'm reading my Bible. What does that have to do with? Can't you see that I'm praying? And if they go to the toilet, they're praying, 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 at work. These people live, they are not relatable or likable. They are very judgmental. Very judgmental people. Look at her. Look at she's walking. See her? Chewing gum. I'm sure she's sleeping around. Because you chew gum, you are sleeping around. They shove their Christianity in your face through loud prayers, music, and their relics all over the place. They are involved in religious activities at inappropriate times. And their faith is inorganic, lots of works and good deeds that doesn't seem natural and attractive. Is it not a wonder sometimes you meet some people who are regular, at least go to church three times in a week, when you see them on the steering, how they abuse the person that drove rough to them. Faith doesn't look good on them. Very angry, very judgmental. They may be beautiful, but their inside is so ugly. They are always willing to argue about every single passage of scripture, and they will not let you go. You almost feel like you've been taken hostage. That's an obnoxious Christian. When Paul says, become like them, please don't be like that. But then there's the opposite. There are the undercover ones. remember what undercover is? Remember some of those? Uh, they don't do undercover movies again, undercover cops, right? But you go in there, no one really knows who you are, but you know who you are. I know who I am, but I don't want anybody to know. Shh, let me find out. That's the undercover Christian. The undercover Christian will do anything to to relate or to be liked. I don't want them to think that we Christians can't have fun, because I don't think because I'm a Christian I can't. They are not discerning. By that I mean if if the obnoxious ones are very judgmental, these ones participate in any single thing, and they just feel, you know what, I am saved by grace. Nothing can touch me. I am above and I'm not, be, I'm not beneath. It's not what, what comes, into a ma, uh, uh, comes into a man that, that, um, that defiles him. But it's what comes out. After all, I'm not saying it like that. Even though I am drinking it all the way, I'm downing it down. Not discerning. That Christianity is extremely private. It's, all about, it's not what you do on the outside. It is what you do. After all, Jesus said that when you pray, don't allow anybody to see you. So it's on the inside. I worship God, I have my own time with him. Look, this morning we had a fantastic time, me and God, we are like this. We'll never cancel any meeting for a religious activity. So there, are, in terms of church programs, their book is always, their program book is always open. Okay, fine, we'll see. But I, you know, I have to hang out with my friends. My friends and I, we decided we were meant to go. There's never a reason. And then finally, their faith seems to be disconnected from their actual lives. On the one hand, the obnoxious Christian is like an alien to the world. And the undercover Christian is just like the world. Some of these people in the undercover Christian, they'll say, I'm doing that so that they would be able to come to meet me when they have answers. My friend, they won't come to meet you because they don't even know you're a Christian. They so say you're just like us. So we mustn't be like them. No, we are called in 2 Corinthians 5 to be ambassadors. Who is an ambassador? An ambassador is, a, is someone who has a nationality from another country but is posted to another one. So when we talk about the Nigerian ambassador to Canada, he is a Nigerian, he holds a Nigerian passport, but he understands the Canadian context. He's going as a missionary from Nigeria to Canada. So he lives in Canada, but he's in Nigeria. Let me move forward. So Paul wants us to be like, when he says be like, he doesn't say you should become them. Notice in verse 21b, he says, it is not as though I am free from God's law, when I'm not like those who are not having the law. He's not saying that you become like people and then throw away any kind of moral bearing. No, you become like them to an extent. That doesn't mean because you want to try to reach out to prostitutes, you do what prostitutes do. He said, I'm not free from God's law. I am under Christ's law. That's why he didn't say become a prostitute. He said, become like. their are limits. So what do we do? How do we, let me take a little bit more practical. We should become, as we become like these people and we understand, we should be aware of what I call gospel openings. Gospel openings. What are gospel openings? These are, it's the consequence of idolatry's failure, which results in a crisis, a question, or an event in the life of a non-Christian that can only be fully resolved by the gospel. Idolatry has failed them. And now, because of that failure, they're either, they're either in a crisis, they either have a question or an event has happened in their life, and that thing can only be solved by the gospel. So take the woman at the well. What was her gospel opening? Satisfaction. She thought that she could find it in the idol of Romans. And so she was sleeping with so many different men. And Jesus said, I have water that when you drink, you will never want thirst again. That was the opening. What was Zacchaeus's own? Guilt. What was sinners and tax collectors' own? Rejection. People had ostracized them because they were ultimate traitors. So when Jesus was sitting with them, they saw in Jesus an acceptance that the whole society was not giving to them. What was Martha's problem? Something we all know in Lagos, workaholism. And that's why she thought with workaholism and this kind of thing, you will be judgmental. You'll be thinking other people are not working like you. Just be angry and a crank whilst you're doing the work. And Jesus said, No, 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 no. You're using this to find an identity. Martha has found where the true identity is. She's sitting down with me. See the gospel opening? And what was Mary and Martha's problem? They had a crisis because of an event that had come. Their brother had died, death was the problem. For many people, questions of life come up at the death of a loved one. So these are gospel openings. Let me give you um, one example that I wrote down here. Well, one is a sacrificial scenario. The other one is a breakup scenario. I don't know. I was going to read both of them, but I don't think we have as much time. No, we don't. So let me give you a sacrificial scenario in the place of work. A subordinate who is still on probation makes a terrible mistake such that if escalated to her by her line manager, will inevitably result in her losing a job. So her line manager noticed the error. And at the next manager's meeting, instead, he took the fall for her. Now he's reprimanded, but both of them keep their jobs, because he had more social capital after a while of working in the company. So both of them keep their job. She's extremely grateful, but is in more intrigued that in a dog-eat-dog corporate atmosphere, like we have here, he would do such a thing. She asks him why he doesn't say more, just that it could happen to anyone. She's unsatisfied and keeps insisting that he explain to her. He finally tells her that he is a Christian. And? Because the opening is there by what he did. He hasn't yet preached the gospel to her. But now this has given him an opening to say something. I am a Christian. And? becoming one requires trusting in a savior who sacrificed his life to save those who deserve death he was just following in the footsteps of Jesus he took the fall for her where did he learn that he learned that because Jesus did the same thing for him she asked him where does he go to church said, and that's one I can give another over many different scenarios where we see gospel opening. and this one I'm telling is a true story It's a true story that happened to somebody um, in a church in New York. There are many different openings. The problem is that we say, it's time for evangelism. Oh, yeah, yeah, let's organize. That is thinking evangelistically and not thinking missionally. If you are thinking missionally, mission is a part of our identity. We are always on mission. You don't wait for something. But it doesn't mean also that you just over it. You're always open. You're always, your ears are always attuned. You have antennas that are always looking for crises and events in people's lives because if we truly believe the gospel and people are not under the gospel, they will have those things in their lives. Just wait for it. No, but this assumes that you have real relationships with people. That's the other thing. If you don't have relationships with people, you can't really have those openings. But those relationships cannot be totally, you can't be totally unequally yoked with them. It's all about partying, it's all about watching movies, and it's all about doing work. If that's the case, you will never again see that these people are under the wrath of God and need to be saved. But if you have genuine relationships where those things matter, but also their eternal salvation matter, you will be open. They will feel like they can come with their issues to you. And that's why I really do think if we're thinking in an urban context, and not really just in an urban context, most of the time when we think of people giving their lives, we think of the Damascus, Damascus Road Paradigm. You know what Damascus Road Paradigm is? Paul, right? This instant on the, he was on the way to actually destroy Christians and he had a moment and then he saved. He was saved. So most times we say, when were you saved? The vast majority of the people in the Bible, there's no such thing as when they were saved. When was Nicodemus saved? Well, it certainly wasn't after he talked to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't tell him, Give your life to me now. In John chapter, that was John chapter 13, John chapter 7, we see him now arguing with the Sanhedrin about a certain issue. Was he saved then? In John chapter 19, we see that he's gone to collect the body of Jesus. We know certainly he was saved then. We just don't know when he was saved. And so we should really stop thinking about evangelism as just a moment. Of course, there's a moment when somebody crosses. That's not your problem. Rather, we should think of evangelism as a process. The evangelistic, uh, what we can call the process evangelism, which is basically, thank you, which is basically, how does the question, how does somebody move from being an inquiring unbeliever to being a renewed believer? That's where we want to go. How do I move from here to here? Now, most times we just say, well, if you just preach the gospel and the person says this prayer after me, then the person will become that. And usually it's not. In fact, normally it takes a first step, and the first step is that the person sees. There's an awareness. And the awareness is basically, I see it. That's when somebody now starts getting rid of stereotypes. He starts saying things like, you know, Christians can be intelligent, you know. Oh, I now see the difference between being a Christian and being moral. Just because they saw certain aspects of your life. Now you move from that stage, and then you move to the stage of relevance. And at that point, the person is saying, you know what, I think I need this. They begin to see the slavery of either living a life out of works, or living a life out of license. At that point, they start saying, an awful lot of very normal people like, people really like this church. It would really help if I could believe like she does. I don't believe like she does, but it will help. Look at her life. I don't like the way my own life is going. I really would like to be like her. And then after, or they may even say Jesus seems to be the key. I wonder who he was. And that moves us from a stage of that and moves us to the stage of credibility. I need it because it is true. At this point, it's not just because it's true for her. I see that it is true. I see that the Bible is historically reliable. Jesus really is God. I see now why Jesus had to die. It's the only way. And then they give it. You go to the stage of trial. I see what it would be like. At this point, they're probably involved in something, some kind of life group, maybe in your gospel community. They start coming. They're talking about Christianity. In fact, you'll find that some of them will start to defend it, even though they have not said that they're Christians. But you just find like, and maybe that's where Nicodemus was in John chapter 7. They start trying it out. And then the next stage is what you can call commitment. This is when they take it. That's when they say, I am a sinner, I need a savior, and I will believe in Jesus and live for him. And after that, then you have the reinforcing stage and at that point, they are being renewed. It's now when the penny drops. Now I get it. And it's only from that that you now move from being an inquire on a non-Christian or unbeliever to becoming a renewed Christian. In other words, what am I saying, part of the problem of the pressure that we face with evangelism is that we are waiting for that person to say, I get it. When we present it to them. So we're looking, because we live in an expertise age, an age where everything is plug and play, we're looking for that teacher or that pastor to be able to say, just give me the exact words. If I can just say these exact words, and then this person, this is why the, you know, the prayer, the sinner's prayer works so much. Because the sinner's prayer, is, is a, it's, it's all in it's, in, it's a very nice toolkit, right? You get to this point, do you like it? Okay, if you like it, say this prayer, now you're a Christian. And most times it is hard work, but at the same time, it's hard work just in your life. Live as that person. If you live as a Christian, you will see that it is not optional to be missional, but you will be aware of gospel openings. Don't miss them out. Final point. Paul, why are we doing this thing? Paul says, Paul basically says this in verse 23. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. What does he really mean? I thought, yeah, we're doing it for the sake of the gospel. Actually, no, I'm not doing it for the sake of the gospel. It's the gospel that we're using to do. What does he mean by I do this for the sake of the gospel? And then he adds this. He says, that I may share in its blessings. Now, that's an unfortunate translation. It's not so much that I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in his blessing, but it's more I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may participate in it. That I may participate in it. In other words, contextualized evangelism is a kind of participation in the gospel in a much more centralized way than just sharing the gospel. And what do I mean by that? If I come to Aleri today, and let's say Aleri has had a crisis in her life, and it's a crisis I don't share. I've never had that in her life, in my life. The best she can expect from me is what we call empathy. That is, as much as possible, I put my leg in her shoes. I can't experience it, but I can try to share the same pain and to then offer words of condolences of just being there. When you're not shared in a particular experience, the best you can do is to offer empathy. But yet there's a distance, because I've not shared in that experience, there's a distance between myself and her in terms of what to say or just even her attractiveness to me as a person that could offer her comfort. If I have shared in that same experience, that's another thing. Because then I'm not offering just empathy. What am I offering? Sympathy. I have shared in your experience. When it says we participate in the gospel, what is happening? What did it take to save humanity? In Islam, for instance, if you are not a Muslim, all you have to do is to confess that Allah, there's no one but there's no there's, no, there's one god and there's no god but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. So you have to believe a certain thing, you have to live in a certain way. And in that way, your sins are forgiven. What does it take, the God of Islam, to forgive your sins? He forgives it. That's all. What does it take in other religions for their God to forgive their sin, For your, your sins? If they, if they have that kind of concept, they just forgive it. What does it take for them to understand your suffering? Well, they know everything now. Because they know everything at best, they can empathize with yourself. What in Christianity did it take for God, God in all glory, who if he spoke to you, you would die? What did it take for God to come and save us? Well, he took a mission. And in that mission, what did he do? God is the ultimate contextualizer. Because when he calls us to be like them, Paul said, be like them, Jesus not only became like us, he became us. He became a human being. The very gospel that we preach and we're taking to others is a gospel that shows contextualization. He became man. He did not become an angel. Hebrews chapter 2 says, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human, in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. You see, when he says that we are participating in the gospel by going out to evangelize with the content that doesn't change but always varying how we present things because the context changes by becoming like the Jew By becoming like those who are not under the law. By becoming like those who are in our workplaces. By becoming like those who listen to this kind of music. By becoming like those who dress in a certain way and not rejecting them just because they are like that. When we do that, we are doing exactly what Jesus did in the gospel. He became like you and I. If death was our portion, he tasted death just like only that in his own, he made an atonement for sins. And so now he's saying, very simple, do likewise. With a passionate heart for the gospel, being equipped to know the gospel, but also knowing your context, this is the way we can save some. You know that song where it says, are you a winner? It eventually, at one point, he says this. Jesus, you don't win, no winner. Pata, pata you go win forever. We only win. Why? Because Jesus won. Let us pray. Lord, you are so good. You are so good. You are so kind. Thank you, Lord, for you left the comfort of heaven. You left the glory of heaven, and you came down. You became like me. You became like us, so that you may save some. And now we have this task, that we've become all things to all people, so that by all means we might save some. Help us, O oh God, to do this for the sake of the gospel. Help us, O oh God, not to make our comfort an idol. Help us not to make awkwardness our greatest fear. Help us, Lord God Almighty, not to look at the things that cost us and then say, well, maybe not today. Forgetting the cost that it costs you. Help us to be like you. Help us to be missionary. I ask all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.